In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we have a very awkward sounding statement. I know you've probably looked at this before, but I want to open by pointing some things out. Genesis chapter 1, starting with verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. My my English teachers, both in high school and college, would have gotten very angry with me if I had written that sentence and those statements. Because in English, it doesn't make any sense. How can God say, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness? She would have sent it back to me with all kinds of red ink, saying your pronouns do not agree. But if we were reading this in the original Hebrew, the pronouns would make perfect sense. They wouldn't disagree. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see the word Elohim, in the beginning God, Elohim. If if I want to talk in English about this one bench, I say bench. But if I want to talk about every bench that's in this room, what do I do? I add, an e, I add an e, yes. Sometimes you add an S in English. English is really funky, so sometimes there's one deer and there's a whole herd of deer. But we would make it plural. And Elohim in Hebrew is the plural, is in the plural form. Okay, it's in the plural form. So when a Hebrew speaker sees, let us make man in our image, he doesn't balk at that. That's not a big deal to him or her. It makes perfect sense. And he, he understands that it's not talking about multiple gods. It's talking about a God who is multiple. And there's a difference. And and right there he says, let us make man in our image. Well, what does it mean to be in the likeness of God? What does it mean to be in the image of God? Does that mean God has two arms and two legs? No, because not every human being has two arms and two legs. Does it mean that uh, God God is, uh, we use the male pronouns for God, so therefore God is a male, so those that are male are made in his image. No, because male and female, he created them. And both the male and the female were in his image. So it it can't have anything to do with how we look. It has to do with something else. And I think we get our answer when we go over to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. There are three components in that verse that I I want us to focus on and we're going to spend this lesson talking about. He formed man out of the dust of the ground. He made a body. He made something to house what he was going to do next. And then it says he breathed into him the breath of life. That word breath, that Hebrew word is neshama. It means breath of God, breath of man, every breathing thing, the spirit of man. 
That's the definition. And that will make a little more sense when we move over to the Greek in just a little bit. And my New King James Version says man became a living being. Some of your versions will say he became a living soul. The Hebrew word that is translated being or soul right there is the word nefesh, which means the seat of emotion, passion, activity of mind, will, character, a soul. So God formed a body, breathed in a spirit, and the soul came to life. I think that's an important thing because that, I believe, is how we are in the image of God. We are a body, we are a soul, and we are a spirit. And that doesn't mean there's three Dugs standing up here looking at you. It means that there are three parts of me that are unified and the same and, and together. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the writer of Hebrews writes, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, there's two of those groupings that we understand. We can understand there's a difference between thoughts and intents. There's things we think about that we never intend on doing or following through with. We understand the difference between joints and marrow. The joints are the the movable part of our bone structure, and the marrow is the center foundation of that bone structure. We understand the difference. The part of that that we have sometimes trouble distinguishing between is the soul and the spirit. Sometimes we conflate those two and we use those words interchangeably. But God's very specific there in Hebrews to tell us that those two things can be divided. They can be separated. They are different. They are not exactly the same. And when we talk about body, soul, and spirit, I think that's one of the things that gives us such a confusion is because there's times when we're looking at a verse that's maybe dealing with the spirit but we're thinking about the soul or it's dealing with the soul and we're thinking about the spirit. We interchange those two things sometimes. And our translators in some cases didn't do us any favors because sometimes they translate those in various ways. I want us to go to first Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five. And verse 23, now these were letters to people and congregations and individuals and groups of individuals. And in a letter, and I know for some of you, letter writing has become quite the thing of the past. But in a letter, in a proper letter, you have an introduction, you have a body, and you have a closing. And the body's where all the information is. The introduction is, hi, how are you? Hope everything's going well. And the closing is... Please tell everybody I know I love them and I'll see you when I can see you. And so sometimes in these letters that Paul and others write, it's easy for us mentally to skip over the openings and closings. But there's sometimes there's some really important information. And I think this is one of those cases. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in the closing to this letter, in verse 23, Paul writes, 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, completely. And may your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. May your whole spirit, soul and body. Now, Paul, the reason I I chose to look at this passage pretty in depth for a moment is because Paul chooses to use three completely different Greek words for the spirit, the soul, and the body. And I think it helps us understand the difference. It helps us understand and see the uniqueness of each part. So let's look at each one. Spirit. The word that is chosen for spirit there is the Greek word pneuma. Now, you'll recognize that as a predecessor to pneumatic or pneumonia. Pneuma, and it means an essence, the vital principle. Sometimes it's used as the third person of God, the spirit of God. This is the very core of who somebody is. It is the vital nature, the vital presence, the principle nature of who they are. Now, when he goes to use for the, our translators use the word soul, they transfer the, translate the word soul. It's a completely different word. It's the word suke. And suke means the Greek word meant the seed of feelings, desires, and affections. Now that's different than the vital principle of who we are. And I think you'll understand that in just a minute. But I want to get to that third word because the third word is really interesting to me. The word that Paul uses for body is the word soma, the Greek word soma. This has a very interesting definition. That which casts a shadow. Now, it's not the shadow itself. That's a completely different word. But that which casts a shadow. So as we think about these three components of man, You are a spirit. That's who you are. That's your vital core principles. You have a soul. And you currently exist in a body. You are a spirit. You have a soul. And you exist in a body. We could also look at it this way. The spirit is who you are. The soul is how you are. And the body is where you are. Those three core principles that God created within the fabric of every human being, a body, a soul, and a spirit. With the spirit, the spirit is what you are. That's how you relate. You relate to spiritual truths, spiritual realities through your spirit. You have to do that because your body can't understand the spiritual. So we relate to the spiritual realities through our spirit. But our mind, our soul, that's our mind, our will, our emotions, our decision-making process. That's the soul. The seat of feelings, desires, and affections. And the body is a vessel. Rick and I's lesson is going to Overlap a little, and I'm grateful for that because you did an excellent job talking about the end and death and the vessel and how it decays. So that keeps me from having to spend too much time on it. So if you're not here and you're listening to the recording, 
Reference Rick Sparks' lesson earlier. The body is a vessel. And the ve- that vessel is how we relate to the physical world we currently live in. We relate to that world through our body. Our spirit and our soul are expressed to the physical world around us through our body. Let's, I'm going, this is the only slide you're going to see. Because throughout this lesson, I want you to be able to see these concepts and keep them in mind as we look at passages. Because I think sometimes we get confused because we start conflating one or the other. So we're going to look at, uh, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting with verse 9. Paul writes this. But as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. There are things that about God that I cannot understand with my physical body and my soul does not naturally comprehend. So my spirit has to understand those things. My spirit understands those things because God's spirit communicates with my spirit to explain them, to help that understanding, and then my spirit can divulge that to my soul. There's a process that has to go on. The Spirit of God reveals spiritual things to us through our spirit, and these are the concepts of God that physical man cannot understand on its own. That's what he's telling us. The spirit of a man cannot understand the things of God except the Spirit of God tells the spirit of man. Unless he is instructed. We mentioned this uh, yesterday. I mentioned this yesterday in my talk in Acts chapter 2 verse 38. When Peter is talking about the process of being baptized. when He says when we're baptized we receive a gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that that cannot be some spiritual gift. Like healing or speaking in tongues or any of those. Because those were only obtained through the laying on of the hands of the apostles. But this gift of the Spirit is an indwelling of the Spirit. It's a piece, a portion of God's Spirit that He gives to man. For what purpose? So that His Spirit can communicate with our Spirit. So that the Spirit of God can work with the Spirit of of us, the Spirit of man. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we're told about the methods that God has used over time to communicate with man. He used to use the the prophets. He used to speak to man through dreams and visions. 
But we're told there that in these later days, in these last days, our time, God doesn't use those methods. He speaks to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's how He's chosen to communicate with us today. For our time on earth, God speaks to us through Christ. Now, Christ isn't here. Christ isn't here, but we can't put him on the schedule to speak to us. That'd be nice, but we can't do that. So what do we have? Christ left us witnesses called apostles so that they could expound the truths of Jesus to us. They could carry on his will and message. We're told they received a full measure of the Spirit. They didn't get just a little piece. They got the full measure so that they could completely understand the things of God. They could have full remembrance of what Jesus did and what he taught. That way they could expound to us truth and we could have confidence in that truth. They received the full measure of the Spirit so their words could be trusted to be aligned with God's will. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, toward the end of when we're being told all of those pieces of the armor of God, we're told about the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit that is able to distinguish between the soul and the Spirit. The sword of God's Spirit is what? I know you know. The Word of God. So the word of God is a method that the spirit has chosen to communicate to us the truths of God, the spiritual truths of God. This is how God teaches us. Now, I do not discount the fact that God can also interact with us, I think, directly with our spirit. Now, I don't think he talks to us in voices in our head because that's what he used to do, Hebrews says. He doesn't talk to us through prophets that are giving us new information because he used to do that. But I think what his spirit can do with our spirit, when we receive that gift of the spirit, it can communicate and help us more fully understand the truths that are in his word. And we can put that, put all the pieces of the puzzle together as much as we can. I know for a fact that there's been times in my life, and if I allowed you, we went around the room, many or most of you, maybe all of you, could say the same thing. That there have been times in your life when it just seems like God is guiding you somehow. Can't put your finger on it. Don't know exactly what's happening. But it seems like there's a path or a, a, a process that God is wanting us to go through or do. And we can feel that. We can feel that push. That's not an exp experiential thing. It's the knowledge of the word that's working in our minds and in our hearts and in our spirit. And the spirit of God is using that to push us forward. This word of God is how the spirit teaches us. This is his main force of communication with us. One we can rely on 
depend on and trust. In Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to start looking at verse 12. Romans chapter 8 and verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many of us are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now I want to stop right there for a second because I think there's an essential truth that we're told here. It's by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body. But according to the Greek definitions of the words, it's the suki, it's the soul, the seat of feelings, desires, our will, our decision-making process that is enacted through our body into the world. So how does the Spirit connect with the body? The spirit, the spirit of God teaches our spirit, the spiritual things of God that the physical man cannot understand. And then our spirit is able to influence our soul, our thinking, our will, our decision making. And that decision making, if it is influenced by our spirit in a way that is, is right in the sight of God, then our actions to the world are righteous. One leads to the other. But my spirit cannot lead my soul, which then cannot direct my body in a correct way, unless my spirit is instructed and taught and influenced by the spirit of God. Because the spirit of man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. We have a choice. We can serve the flesh or we can serve the Spirit. And only by surrendering our own will can the Spirit lead us. We have to decide in our soul that we are going to allow our Spirit to be led and taught and influenced by the Spirit of God. That's the only way it can happen. I'll give you a little example. It's the best one I've come up with so far. You're building a house and you decide it's time to put the electrical through the entire house. You need somebody to come in and put your box in and wire the, all the outlets and switches and you're going to make your house electrical. So you put an ad in the newspaper. I need an electrician. I need somebody to come wire my house. And all kinds of people answer that ad. And you have one young man that's about 19 years old, 20 years old. He comes to you and he says, I want to be the one to wire your house for electricity. Well, do you have any experience? Nope. Never done electrical work in my entire life, but I really want to be an electrician. Are you going to let him wire your house? No. Who are you going to get to wire your house? A master electrician. You're going to get an electrician that has been trained, that has experience, that knows what they're doing so that the electrical is done properly. Now, my question is this. 
could that young man someday be a wonderful master electrician? Yeah. But what does he need first? He needs instruction. He needs to be taught the things he doesn't know. He needs to be taught the things he doesn't even know that he doesn't know. And that's how we are with God. God, we have this spirit that doesn't even know the things it doesn't know. And until it is taught by the master, it can't know. It can't understand. And if it can't know and can't understand, it cannot direct the soul. It cannot influence the way we think. It cannot influence our decision making. It cannot influence our will. And without the proper influence on that decision making and will, our actions are not going to be godly. But it starts with being willing, submitting your will, submitting my will to the master, submitting to the process of my spirit being instructed and guided in the proper way by the spirit of God, by the spirit of the master. This interaction with the Spirit of God allows our spirit to influence our soul, which is expressed by our body. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, there's something interesting that Jesus says. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him how? In spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Our worship must be guided by the Spirit of God. It must be. Only then can our acts of worship, the things we do with our body to worship God, only then can that worship be from the Spirit. Decided on by our soul and acted out by our body. That's the way the process works. Any worship action that is not from God is our soul going out on its own. Is us making a decision to do our own thing if it's not God-directed worship. So God says, I want you to worship me with all your being in spirit, knowing understanding from God, from the Spirit of God, what God wants in our worship, that our spirit then translating that to our ability to decide and make decisions based on our will, and then that acting out through our body, through our soma, through that which casts a shadow. If our spirit is one with God's spirit, our soul will be turned to God and our body will follow. You know, it's interesting to me, and I did this on purpose. The title of the lesson is Body, Soul, and Spirit. But did anybody notice that Paul, when he talked about those three entities altogether, he completely reversed it? Spirit, soul, and body. seems to me that the body is the lesser of the three. But we tend to put a lot of emphasis on our body. I've spent, a, I've spent time 
over the years working with teens and adults that suffer from addictions and all kinds of things like that. You know how easy it is for them to change their behavior just because they're changing their behavior? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. They have to decide that they want to change. But there's something even before that. They have to have the spirit that they don't want to do what they were doing anymore then their mind can make the decision to follow that guidance and then their body will follow the direction of that decision. It takes all three working together. So what about when we die? And Rick spoke a little bit on this. I'm gonna, I won't spend a lot of time on this. The pneuma, the spirit, is eternal. The spirit is eternal. Luke chapter 23, sorry, Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. As Jesus is dying, he says, Father, into my hands I commit my spirit. I commit my pneuma. After his death, Jesus knew that his spirit was going to continue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5, verse 5 Paul says, in the process of uh, church discipline, which we also touched on in an earlier lesson. In the process of church discipline, he says, deliver such a one to Satan. Why? For the destruction of the flesh, but that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The spirit is eternal. The spirit continues. That which God breathed into the nostrils of man and gave him a life-giving spirit, that continues. That is eternal. The suke, the soul, is eternal. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 9, Peter says, receiving the end of your faith. And then he tells us what the end of that faith is, the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your suki, suke. The spirit and the soul are eternal. They continue on after death. But what about the body? Well, the soma we currently exist in, not eternal. We know that. We know that from experience. We know that from seeing that when people die, they begin to deteriorate. We see that just from getting older in our own. We see and feel our bodies deteriorating. This body is not eternal. We're told that in the scripture and we know it from personal experience that this body does not last. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 that Rick um, mentioned and brought out. And we're going to look at a couple of things. First Corinthians chapter 15. But someone will say, I like how Paul starts that. There's going to be somebody bring this point up. So here it is. How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. 
And what you sow, you do not sow that body that will be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Now we know this, right? You plant a kernel of corn in the ground. It's not a kernel of corn that pops up out of the ground. It's a plant. It's a different type of body that eventually will produce more corn. But if you didn't know what a corn plant looked like, you wouldn't know what's coming up. You know, people that plant gardens, they put markers where everything is. Because for a while, sometimes you can't tell. The body comes up different than what you planted. And God's saying that's what it is with this. The body you plant is not the body that's coming forth. Verse 39, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There's also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, another glory of the star, for stars differ from one another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body, this soma, is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. Whatever our spiritual body is going to look like, it's going to be different than this one. Now, there may be some characteristics. I don't know. You know, in the process of studying this, I feel like I have a little better handle on some things, but I have as many questions as I have answers. And I think my studying process has led me to more questions that I didn't have before. Remember, we talked about sometimes we don't even know what we don't know. So I don't have all the answers, but I do know this, that the body that dies here and sown is not going to be the body that I will be raised with. It's going to be a little different somehow. I don't know exactly how. But I want you to consider this. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's there with some of the apostles. Somebody else shows up. Remember who that was? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And the apostles, uh, the apostles that are there immediately recognize Moses and they recognize Elijah. How did they do that? They weren't old enough to know them personally. I don't think there's name tags in heaven. They'd never seen any pictures. Somehow, somehow the apostles knew that's Elijah and that's Moses. They knew. I don't know how they knew. I wish I knew how they knew. But I don't know how they knew. Say those sentences a few times. I don't know. But I know they knew them. He called them by name. If the spirit is eternal and the spirit is the vital essence of who we are. A 
fellow spirit is going to know another spirit. If the soul is eternal and the soul is the process that we use for for making up our minds, for deciding things, our will, our emotions, our decision-making process. It makes me wonder. We will exist in heaven and for eternity with a spirit and a soul and a body of some kind. A spiritual body, not a physical one. Perhaps one of the comforts of heaven will be the awareness that we were taught and led by the Spirit of God and made decisions according to that leading. And perhaps one of the tortures of hell will be the awareness that we didn't have to be there. 